Welcome to Breast Cancer Update, an audio review journal for oncology nurses. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. One of the greatest challenges we face as a CME-CNE provider is making sure our series winds up in the hands of people who truly want and value it. For that reason, we believe it's essential to occasionally reevaluate our active mail list to not only add interested individuals, but also to remove those who no longer want to receive our programs. Now is one of those times. Unless you've already renewed your free subscription to Breast Cancer Update, in 2008 you'll be dropped from our mail list and no longer be sent future issues of our nursing programs. We don't take this action lightly and would really like nothing more than to keep you on our active proprietary mailing list and keep you listening. So if you want to continue to receive the Breast Cancer Update series and other similar nursing programs, please follow one of these three easy steps. Visit www.breastcancerupdate.com nurses and click on the subscription icon or email your request to info at breastcancerupdate.com or call us at 800-648-8654. Our goal is and has always been to provide all members of the oncology nursing community with valuable education perspectives available no place else. To that end, if you have colleagues who you think might also enjoy and benefit from this series, now is a great time to encourage them to sign up as well. Thank you for your ongoing support of Breast Cancer Update, and now on to the program. The theme of our series is the application of emerging clinical research information to daily patient care, and to begin, I met with Dr. Lee Schwartzberg, who's been a leader in developing programs that allow medical oncologists and community practice to participate in clinical research. Dr. Schwartzberg began our conversation by discussing the challenge that this poses. I've been real interested in community-based clinical research my whole career, and we've spent the last few years working on ways to make clinical research more a part of the fabric of the practice. And it's very difficult in a busy private practice of community oncology to get research integrated, despite the best intentions of the physicians and the nurses and everyone working there. The reason is, as you know, practices are set up to take care of patients, to make decisions, and to process patients in a way that's efficient for them, that's comfortable for them. And when you do clinical research, it's different. And it's different in the sense that you have to follow a protocol. It takes time out of a day. So it's really important to get research to be part of the practice so that doctors who are seeing a lot of patients, sometimes 30, 40 patients a day, have the time to spend with a patient, talk about the research project, talk about the trial, have a nurse nearby who understands the trial, can talk to the patient. So there's no undue delay in getting that patient onto the trial and moving ahead with their therapy. Because patients are used to getting treatment decisions from their doctors pretty quickly and then moving on to the next therapy. And so it's important not to have delays. Now, understandably, clinical research is about doing things by a protocol and it has a scientific basis. So there's often many screening studies that have to be done. The informed consent has to be discussed and then the patient has to be eligible. So facilitating that and making it a part of the practice is really important. And getting the whole practice involved. One thing I've learned over the years is getting the engagement of everybody in the practice, not just the doctors who are often engaged, but the nurses, even the front desk staff and the phlebotomists, they all have to be engaged that clinical research is worthy of the patients who are going through their practice. And if they are, it makes the whole process much smoother. 
How do you find people in that type of setting, everybody from the doctors to the nurses to the receptionists responding to this idea? They're seeing in the patients walking through these offices the effect of this disease. They see people die of this disease. How much commitment do you see in people in oncology offices to this? I think they really understand that clinical research is important for the next generation, for doing better, for the patients who will be coming not only today but tomorrow and next year. And when you stop and explain it to them that the advances we're actually implementing today for our patients, approved drugs, were based on studies that were done sometimes in the practice or somewhere else a couple years ago, and that the pace is picking up and there's lots of knowledge out there, we just have to get the drugs tested so we can get them to patients. They all respond to that. That's a very powerful and provocative message. And then it's a question of making it operational and making it work in a practice. Can you briefly review the types of clinical trials that are utilized in oncology right now, the phase one, two, and three? Sure. There are basically three types of trials in oncology, phases of trials. Phase one trials are new drugs that are just entering clinical trials, just entering human testing. They've been tested extensively in vitro, so in animals and in test tubes, and they have activity. Phase one looks for toxicity or side effects of the drug. And in general, the traditional phase one type of testing was to increase the dosing of the drug until it gets to the maximally tolerated dose. That has changed a little bit with this influx of biological therapies, some of which don't have the traditional toxicities of myelosuppression and other toxicities that we see with the cytotoxics. So we're revising and revisiting the way that phase one studies are done. But for the most part, we're still looking at either a single drug, new drug, or a single new drug combined with older drugs to see what the maximally tolerated dose is. Once that is established, then we can move into phase two. Phase two looks for efficacy of the drug. In other words, in patient populations that are more circumscribed, for example, in breast cancer or in non-small cell lung cancer, and a group of patients are tested to see what the response rate is. In fact, in the past, we used response rate as the criteria for phase two trials. That is also changing somewhat. We're looking more for progression-free survival or time to progression. In other words, looking at an x-ray and seeing shrinkage is not necessarily the best marker for how well a drug does. Again, with the new biologicals, the fact that some of them don't cause a lot of shrinkage of tumors but are very powerful in terms of keeping cancers from growing, for example, the anti-angiogenic agents typically have that, then we can use those kinds of drugs and those kinds of studies to see how good that particular drug is. So once we test a new drug in phase two and we see a reliable either response rate or a progression-free survival that looks meaningful compared to previous drugs that we use in a particular disease, then the manufacturer makes a decision whether or not they want to take it into a phase three trial. A phase three trial is required by the FDA to get approval of the drug. And a phase three trial, the new agent is compared either by itself or in combination to the best effective therapy that's available against that disease. So again, this would be a specific group of patients, for example, first-line metastatic breast cancer patients or first-line non-small cell lung cancer patients, and they would be treated either with the standard treatment or with the new therapy, which might be the standard plus the new therapy or a new therapy alone. Those trials are usually very large and usually contain several hundred to sometimes thousands of patients, and they're looking for a benefit above what would be seen with the standard therapy, or sometimes to reduce toxicity of a standard therapy. If that study is positive, then it may lead to approval of the drug. 
And what kinds of protections are in place for the patients in terms of making sure that the trials are safe and that they're reasonable trials for people to participate in? Protection of patients is taken very seriously all along the chain of caring for patients. So that not only includes the physician of record, the oncologist who's caring for the patient, who has to be absolutely invested in the trial and believe that it asks an important scientific question and that it's safe for the patient to take. But even more importantly, there's a whole layer of regulatory effect that goes to ensuring that patients are protected. And that consists of an institutional review board or an IRB. An IRB is used to review every single protocol, and that study is dissected for its scientific merit, for its safety to patients, and as a result of the IRB, there is an informed consent generated. The informed consent lays out what the study is about, it lays out the risks of the studies, it lays out what the alternative treatments are, and the protection that the patient has, including the rights of the protection of any patient that's on a clinical trial. All informed consents are reviewed extensively by the physician and the research coordinator before a patient signs up for a study. A patient has the right to refuse a study at any time. They have the right to come off a trial at any time for any reason if they're not comfortable in participating with that trial. So there's really a very strong protection built into every trial that a patient will go on, whether that's oncology trial or any other kind of clinical trial in medicine. There's been a lot of discussion about the fact that not that many patients are offered clinical trial participation. A lot of patients are treated without it being brought up. Their physician may or may not be involved with clinical trials. What do you think is behind that, and what types of financial issues are involved? I've heard people say, docs in practice, that in some of the trials, particularly the ones that are sort of governmentally based funding, that they lose money by participating. And there's been a cutback, and I don't want to kind of get into the whole politics, but just sort of globally, how do you see the issue in terms of how well we're doing and what kind of financial support is involved for participation? That's a real interesting question we could spend a long time on, but just briefly, I think enrolling patients on trials is very complex, and there are many issues that relate to why more patients don't go on trial. And as you know, only about 3 or 4% of adult cancer patients are enrolled on clinical trials in this country. That's a real problem because there's at least 300 drugs that are in active testing now. And since many of them are designed to be used in combination, the number of clinical trials that need to be completed to understand how well these drugs do is enormous. And simply speaking, there are too many trials chasing too few patients right now. So this is a critical problem that we have to solve. Now, there are many elements to the problem. One of them is, in fact, financial. The studies that are sponsored by the National Cancer Institute that are typically run through the cooperative groups like SWOG, ECOG, and CLGB have fixed funding, which usually amounts to approximately $2,000 per patient as a per-patient grant. Unfortunately, those dollars don't even come close to covering the fixed costs of taking care of a patient, and that has to do with the nurse coordinator time and the data management time and all of the reporting that is intrinsic to a clinical trial. It doesn't appear to me that there's going to be any relief on that. The NCI budget was approved frozen. Already a number of trials from some of the cooperative groups have closed, and a number of the committees in the cooperative groups have also closed up business. So there are literally some diseases that are not even being studied by the cooperative groups now. 
So we have a real problem with the NCI-sponsored trials at that funding level. And that problem is compounded by the fact that community oncology is now seeing a tremendous impact of the budget cuts that occurred as a part of the MMA Act of 2003. And this year in 2007, we're really seeing the implications of this because the way the drugs are funded make it clear that some of the regimens we give are underwater. It actually costs us more money to purchase the drug than we can give it at. We're losing money on that. So what I've seen happen in community oncology is sort of a dichotomy of practices in terms of what they're doing with research. Many practices are just saying it's not worth doing research because there are fixed costs and infrastructure that one has to develop for research, including regulatory staff and budgeting staff and people that do the trials, the research coordinators and data managers and research assistants. And to have all that in place is just too expensive, particularly as it relates to NCI-sponsored trials. Other groups are taking another approach. In fact, actually many of them are banding into networks where there's centralization of some of those processes to make the process more efficient. So I think we have a big problem in terms of reimbursement for trials. Now on the pharmaceutical side, we've seen growth of trials, in part because pharmaceutical companies have more agents and they want to get those agents tested, and also because community oncologists have more physicians who are better trained, who understand clinical trials, who came out of the academic medical centers, who are interested in doing trials. So we've seen a shift over the last 10 years where the large majority of trials were actually NCI-sponsored trials done through cooperative groups, to now over half the trials actually pharmaceutical companies-sponsored and being done more and more in the community. But some of those challenges still exist. The other challenges that exist that go beyond reimbursement and financial have to do with access to trials. My own personal feeling, and I'm part of a large group of community oncologists, is to have a trial available for every common disease state. So a doctor doesn't have to think, do I have a second-line non-small cell lung cancer trial open or do I have a first-line pancreatic cancer trial open? The goal in our group, at least, is to have a study open for every common cancer so that at any point a clinical trial becomes a viable option. And in fact, we try to impress upon our physicians that the clinical trial is the best option for virtually any disease because we're not curing the vast majority of patients, at least with metastatic disease, and there's much room for improvement. And even where we have very effective therapies, there's room for reducing side effects and using alternative agents and regimens that might do that and make the process simpler and easier for our patients. So very complicated in terms of doing clinical trials. And the one other point about clinical trials is because they have to be designed in a way to answer a question, many of the patients that would be eligible for trials are not. For example, most studies do not accept patients who have had a prior diagnosis of cancer, usually any time in their life. Well, we're doing better with treating cancer patients now, and it's not uncommon in my practice to have patients who come in with their second or even third cancer seven, ten years after their first diagnosis. Based on historical beliefs, those patients would not qualify for trials. And we need to step back and think about the inclusion and exclusion criteria for these trials because some of them perhaps could be relaxed, which would allow more patients to participate instead of being excluded even when their physicians would like them to be on a study. Okay, well, I want to go through a few common scenarios in breast cancer in the adjuvant and metastatic setting 
And I want to hear from you a little bit about how reported trials would affect this kind of situation and then what kinds of new trials patients like this might be offered. And I want to start with one of the most common situations that an oncologist sees in practice. And fortunately, because of greater use of mammography, we're seeing more patients with node-negative tumors. We're seeing most people getting sentinel node biopsies. We know that most of breast cancer is ER positive. You add all that up, and there are a lot of people presenting to consider adjuvant therapy who have node-negative, ER-positive, and we're going to say a HER2-negative tumor. And one of the issues there is, of course, the use of hormonal therapy because it's an ER-positive tumor, but also the question of where adjuvant chemotherapy fits in. Well, I think we've seen over the last few years that patients who are hormone receptor positive clearly respond very well to hormonal therapy. So at the same time that we've become more aggressive with chemotherapy for hormone-positive patients and node-negative patients, in fact, we've also seen a shifting emphasis that the benefit from adjuvant therapy resides more and more in the endocrine therapy and with chemotherapy adding proportionately less when the patient has an ER-positive tumor. So one of the things that I've personally been doing in this group of patients is making use of the Oncotype DX test very frequently for node-negative patients. And if I have a patient with what I would consider a favorable hormone-positive state with a relatively small tumor, even a patient with a T2 tumor, I will frequently, in the node-negative setting, uh, obtain an Oncotype DX. And the Taylor RX trial is actually testing this approach because it's taking patients who fall into this category and sorting them by the Oncotype DX test, which is a test that takes the paraffin-embedded tumor tissue by looking at a number of gene expression, sorts the patients into low-risk, intermediate-risk, and high-risk for recurrence at 10 years after treatment with tamoxifen alone. And one can use that either clinically or to participate in the Taylor-Rix study, which is an intergroup trial that is looking at that group of patients with the intermediate risk and saying those patients can either get chemotherapy or not get chemotherapy, and they're randomized there to see how they do with the assumption that patients in the low-risk group will do perfectly fine with hormonal therapy alone, and those in the high-risk group will do better with hormonal therapy and chemotherapy. In fact, actually, most patients are in the intermediate risk group, and that's where the clinical decision-making difficulty occurs. Now, you mentioned the Taylor-X trial, and one of the things that's very interesting, as you mentioned, is that in that study, the patients who have the intermediate score, where we're not really sure whether chemotherapy is going to be helpful, undergo randomization to either get chemotherapy, which I guess is within reason almost most of the types of chemotherapy available that we can use, or not. And that's a pretty big difference in terms of quality of life. How do you find people responding to that idea, patients? It's actually a difficult issue for patients when you talk to them about randomization there. They accept the fact that there is uncertainty, but it's been difficult to get some physicians and patients engaged in that idea. Many community oncologists have adopted the belief that a brief course of chemotherapy, even in the setting of endocrine-responsive tumors, adds benefit. And so I think we're probably in an era where we're somewhat over-treating patients 
and that's based on not having genomic markers or biological markers to clearly indicate who would be most responsive to endocrine therapy alone or to chemotherapy. And I think we're rapidly moving out of this era of one-size-fits-all, and the TaylorX study is one good example of that, actually the largest example of that. You know, I'll tell you an interesting story. Just a few weeks ago, I ran a symposium at the American Society of Breast Surgeons meeting. We had 500 surgeons in the room, and they all had these keypads so we could poll them. And I've always been interested in how people outside of oncology perceive oncologists, and particularly in terms of judgments about when to use chemo or not. And in the past, when I've polled surgeons at these types of meetings, there's been a sentiment that maybe oncologists overutilize chemotherapy. So I asked the same question this year, and I specifically said, in general, with the oncologists you deal with in your own practices, do you think that when they make judgments about utilizing chemotherapy in a node-negative patient, that they tend to overutilize it, underutilize it, or use in about the right amount? And it was interesting that what I saw this year was that the most common answer was they use about the right amount, which we haven't seen before. So I think people outside of oncology are starting to see that we're really trying not to give chemotherapy unless we really need to, and that tools like Oncotype are helping us. That's real interesting. I think it also might reflect the fact that surgeons and oncologists are working more closely together than ever before. In my own community, we're getting more and more referrals for neoadjuvant chemotherapy for even smaller tumors, actually. Not uncommonly to see two, three centimeter tumors referred for neoadjuvant chemotherapy that are clinically node negative based on the fact that it might make the surgery easier and that the surgical oncologists and the breast surgeons are very interested in in vivo response to chemotherapy. Has that been your experience as well? Yeah, I think so. And I know you are doing research on preoperative therapy. There's just a tremendous interest in it. And as long as you've brought that up, just in terms of research, I'm curious about one of the major preoperative cooperative group studies that's been launched fairly recently by the NSABP, looking at chemotherapy, several different types, by itself or with bevacizumab, Avastin, as neoadjuvant therapy, the NSABP B40 study. What do you think about that trial? I think it's a really fascinating trial. There's tremendous interest in using bevacizumab in breast cancer as it's already been proven in colon cancer and non-small cell lung cancer. And there's two schools of thought. One school of thought is that bevacizumab may be of greatest benefit in small tumors before they're established, as would be done in the adjuvant setting. And it may particularly be of use in the neoadjuvant setting where we can actually test and see what intermediate biomarkers might be. For example, what happens when we look at tumor biopsies and see what happens after we treat patients with chemotherapy and bevacizumab in the neoadjuvant setting or the preoperative setting. So I think that's a tremendously exciting area of research. In breast cancer, we have signals that bevacizumab in the metastatic setting adds to progression-free survival and response rate, and we're waiting for overall survival data from the large trials there. There's a lot of data that supports that angiogenesis is important in the growth of breast cancers, and I think that this study will truly be a pivotal trial in terms of telling us some answers about the use of anti-angiogenic therapy. And of course, you know, one of the things, as you mentioned, with these new adjuvant studies is to be able to look inside the tumor. And actually, the pathologist from the NSABP, Soon Paik, who did a lot of the work, the majority of the work with the oncotype from the NSABP, and I'm really curious to see what he's going to be looking at inside these tumors, getting chemo plus bevacizumab. What are some of the things that people have talked about looking at to try to predict, you know, who's going to benefit? 
Well, I think that we're understanding that the growth pathways and the vascular pathways are interrelated. So we see, for example, MAP kinase may be important in activating that, may then activate VEGF. And so there may be something of an autocrine type of feedback loop here where we're seeing that tumors that are stimulated to grow intrinsically through other pathways, perhaps HER2 as well, are then generating more VEGF and then have more growth of the vasculature to the tumor. So I think we'll be looking at a variety of downstream events beyond HER2 signals and other signals. P53 mutation may be important here as well. And then what happens to VEGF expression and a variety of VEGF and PDGF expression may also be important. I want to ask you about the issue of looking at bevacizumab in the earlier stage disease. We just talked about neoadjuvant setting, but also now there are going to be adjuvant trials looking at bevacizumab. How do you think that this agent is going to play out in the adjuvant or neoadjuvant setting from the point of view of safety and toxicity? I think that's a real good question, particularly in the adjuvant setting, because unless we can find a marker for those patients that are at highest benefit from bevacizumab, if we're going to go back to the all-comers approach, then clearly we're going to be treating a lot of people with this agent who won't need it because they will have been cured by either their surgery or their surgery and standard chemotherapy alone. Therefore, in the adjuvant setting, the safety becomes a really much bigger critical question. And we don't have long-term toxicity data on bevacizumab, and we don't have long-term toxicity data, particularly when combined with drugs that might affect the heart or vasculature like adriamycin. So I think we have to be very, very careful in those settings. And I'm hoping we don't come up with something of a mixed signal there, which is to say that there might be some benefit from bevacizumab as well as some potential toxicity, and then it becomes very difficult to try to determine who is the best candidate for that drug in the adjuvant setting. So I'm hoping that in those trials, there will be corollary studies done that hopefully will give us some clue as to who will benefit, assuming there is benefit from bevacizumab in the adjuvant setting, knowing who will benefit, which will probably be a relatively small proportion since we're already doing relatively well with the majority of patients, we can figure that out, I think it'll be much better. Otherwise, we may be in a situation where there are issues not only with safety, but also with expense in that setting, which could be very difficult. Now, a couple of the issues that have come out in using bevacizumab in the metastatic setting are the issue of hypertension and also the issue of delayed wound healing in patients who are going to have surgery. How does that play out in the patients in the metastatic setting, and how do you think it's going to work in terms of these trials now, looking at it in the adjuvant or neoadjuvant situation? I think the trials will be designed in the adjuvant setting to start the bevacizumab long enough after wound healing. And these days, wound healing from breast surgery, as you well know, is a rather modest event, except perhaps for drainage of the axilla, which in my experience is really the biggest issue. So patients still getting seromas and having to have their drains in if they do have a complete axillary dissection, or even occasionally after sentinel node biopsy alone is the issue. The actual healing of the breast is not a big issue. I think it becomes a very big issue in the neoadjuvant setting, because there you're going to balance going to surgery with giving the drug and if we can extrapolate from the colon experience where there is a fair amount of experience, 
Generally, the recommendation is to wait four to eight weeks after the last dose of bevacizumab before one does surgery. Now, again, the surgery on the colon will be somewhat more extensive than one would do on the breast, but I think the issues about wound healing in breast surgery and possibly cosmetic results if one is doing breast conservation might be a real issue. So you don't want to leave a patient too long after therapy before they go to surgery, and finding that balance in the neoadjuvant setting I think will be important. And then again, following those patients afterwards, particularly patients who have had bevacizumab in the neoadjuvant setting and possibly in adjuvant after their surgery, and seeing what the effects of radiation are on that. We have no idea about that, and that's a very important aspect for breast cancer, which is specific and very different than we've seen, for example, in colon or lung cancer. So we have a lot to learn in that setting. How do you handle the issue of wound healing and surgery in your patients with metastatic disease right now? And for example, what about minor types of surgical procedures, putting in ports or you know even dental work? How do you approach that in patients who are getting bevacizumab? Minor surgical procedures have not been an issue in my experience. We're able to put in ports and start bevacizumab really right away, and we don't see any impaired wound healing for ports, for dental surgery, for minor surgical procedures. For patients that are on the drug and then have to undergo surgery, we like to stop four weeks in advance. And we've had a few patients who have gone through surgery who have not had that amount of time because they've had an emergent surgical issue. In general, I would say that for a limited number of patients hasn't been a huge issue in terms of wound healing. What about the issue of hypertension? What have you experienced in terms of that in the metastatic setting? And how do you think it's going to work in the adjuvant situation in these trials? I think hypertension is going to be an issue in the adjuvant setting because it's common. And my experience with bevacizumab, as in the clinical trials, development of hypertension is common, and the adding drugs or starting antihypertensive agents is very common. So again, if we hearken back to the adjuvant setting, we're treating a lot of patients, and a certain percentage of them are going to get hypertension. We don't know really if that's going to be sustained hypertension, but you couple hypertension with the possibility of some cardiotoxicity becomes an issue. And what's going to happen 10, 15 years down the line from patients that are rendered hypertensive, even if it's briefly in the setting of possible cardiotoxic agents is completely unknown. So I think we're going to have to have a concerted safety approach to these adjuvant trials, and I'm sure they will be designed looking for late effects, not only from the hypertension, but from any other vascular effects that could occur later. I guess one of the things about bevacizumab is that potentially it offers something to the patient who doesn't have either an ER positive or a HER2 positive tumor, in other words, a triple negative tumor. And so in these new trials trying to look at this agent, although, you know, they're looking at it in all different types of situations, I guess one of the issues is that maybe now we have some type of targeted therapy that might be helpful to these patients with triple negative tumors. Any thoughts? I'm not sure that there's a whole lot of data that bevacizumab would be more active in triple negative tumors than in other subsets of breast cancer. But as you say, there really is no targeted agent there. So to the extent that it has activity beyond that of standard chemotherapy, it potentially will be very useful. And it's so interesting when you reflect on the HER2 population now who went from what was arguably the worst population and now potentially the best population with the use of anti-HER2 therapy. So now we're left with the triple negatives who have a very poor prognosis and aggressive types of cancers. So I think if bevacizumab has activity there, just by virtue of the fact that the activity is low with standard chemotherapy, it will be a benefit.
Now, there also needs to be further research into the possibility that the pathways that are involved in patients that have triple negative basal type cancers may in fact have an increased propensity to autogeneration of VEGF and to impacting the angiogenic pathway. There is some data there and we just need more. You mentioned that the trials looking at bevacizumab being added to chemotherapy and metastatic disease at this point are showing a progression-free survival advantage, and really right now we don't know what the effects is going to be on survival. And you talked earlier about the idea of endpoints in the trials and looking for progression-free survival as opposed to response rate. What do you think it means at a human level for a patient to have greater progression-free survival? In other words, a longer time before they have to switch to another therapy. How does that play out clinically? I think that's a key point, Neil. We were focused for a long time at looking at x-rays and CT scans and showing shrinkage. We use the RESIST criteria today, which uses a fixed point of a 30% shrinkage in the diameters of the lesions that we're measuring as a endpoint. That has very little human impact. There are many patients who are totally asymptomatic from disease that's measurable and could be symptomatic from non-measurable disease. What's important to them is, number one, how they feel. Number one is how they feel. And so does a therapy prolong them feeling good or having least amount of toxicity from both their treatment and specifically from their cancer? And the best surrogate from a clinical trial perspective is probably progression-free survival there. I would, though, advocate that quality of life endpoints are important in breast cancer trials and, in fact, all clinical trials with cancer. We've been thrown a little bit of a curveball now from the FDA, who has now decided that there are no criteria for measuring quality of life which meet up to their snuff. And that's, I think, very disappointing because there are many established tools of quality of life that have been validated and should be accepted for proving that patients can have improvement in their fatigue, improvement in their pain, certainly, and their overall quality of life. So that's a concern going forward. But in terms of looking at what's the hard endpoint to measure for a breast cancer patient, it's not only how long they go on one chemotherapy, and of course, the hard endpoint is how long they live overall, but how they feel, and how well you control their symptoms with the therapy. So the best aggregate endpoint right now, I believe, is progression-free survival rather than response rate. And again, particularly as we move away from cytotoxic therapies who were designed to shrink a certain fraction of tumors, although rarely to have a complete response, the response rate probably has less meaning as we move into the biological therapeutic arena where tumors are more often kept cytostatic rather than actually shrunk. I want to circle back to this issue of the patient with a node-negative tumor that's ER positive, and I'm curious about your take, again, in terms of the issue of clinical research, in terms of the choice of chemotherapy in that situation, where, you know, there's going to be a little bit less benefit than we see, or at least absolute benefit, compared to a patient with a node-positive tumor. And one of the issues that's been discussed a lot in the last year or two is the question of, do we need to use anthracyclines, for example, adriamycin, with a potential risk, small risk, of cardiomyopathy and leukemia? And I'm curious about your take on the TC regimen, docetaxel cyclophosphamide, that was reported by U.S. Oncology as a non-anthracycline alternative in this situation. Yeah, I was impressed with Steve Jones' study and It's been reported now in full, and I think it's a large trial. It's a well-conducted trial, and it basically showed that TC was actually slightly better than AC and had overall differing toxicities, but overall certainly less toxicity and certainly much less in the way of cardiotoxicity. 
So in my practice, we've adopted TC as one of the regimens that patients are eligible for. I typically use that in exactly the type of patient that you're talking about, which is the node-negative patient, because if I recall the trial correctly, it actually was in node-negative patients only. So I'm not sure that we're ready to abandon what I would consider a three-drug regimen, that is an adriamycin, cyclophosphamide, and taxane regimen in higher-risk patients. But certainly in lower-risk patients, a two-drug regimen is appropriate And TC fits the bill because it's very well tolerated. It doesn't have the long-term cardiac effects, and it provides a great deal of efficacy in that setting. Any thoughts about sort of the tolerability of TC versus AC? We've gotten used to AC. It's probably the most common regimen, we think, based on our patterns of care study that's being used right now. But, you know, there are problems that can occur, not just the long-term, but also short-term in terms of some patients having problems with GI toxicity. How do you see these two regimens comparing in terms of quality of life as they go through it? I think that the acute toxicity of TC is, generally speaking, less than AC. As you say, mucositis remains a problem in a small but significant minority of patients, probably. Actually, we looked at our database and we found it in about 10 to 15 percent of patients receiving anthracycline-based therapies in the adjuvant setting in a very large database of thousands of patients with severe oral mucositis. So it's not that uncommon. We see somewhat more nausea with AC as well, even with the best antiemetic therapies, and that's still an unresolved problem for patients with breast cancer that deserves more study, I believe, as well. The problem with TC, in my experience, tends to relate to something that is more annoying, I think, than long-term, which is we're seeing some skin toxicity with TC. We certainly see a lot of nail toxicity. We even see eye tearing as a problem, even when docetaxel is given every three weeks as opposed to weekly, where it's actually much more common in my experience. That can be an annoying problem, and some patients actually have to have dilatation of their eye ducts later on. And we do see still some neurotoxicity, which is my great concern with the use of paclitaxel, actually, which we have great experience with. We're seeing patients who have prolonged neurotoxicity. So there is a little bit of trade-off there. Although it's usually grade one or two, and mild to moderate, it can be somewhat prolonged. It's certainly less common with docetaxel, in my experience, than paclitaxel, but we do see some patients who get that. What about hormonal therapy? Of course, we've seen a big shift in terms of the use of aromatase inhibitors instead of tamoxifen in postmenopausal patients. What's occurring in your practice in terms of selection of hormonal therapy, both in the premenopausal and postmenopausal patients, and what are some of the trials that you're participating in looking at hormonal therapy? Currently, I would say in my practice and across community oncology, the aromatase inhibitors have become the standard of care for postmenopausal women. And in fact, the initiation of hormonal therapy is, I would say, almost universal with AIs. There's a great deal of debate at meetings about sequencing, and we're waiting for the two other arms of the Big 98 trial, which will give us the head-to-head data of whether or not there's benefit in sequencing patients with tamoxifen before an AI, or for that matter, tamoxifen after an AI, after a couple of years in that setting. So that's data that I'm very eager to see. In the absence of that, although there are some models that suggest that there might be benefit to starting tamoxifen first in postmenopausal women and then following it with an AI, think in practical terms, an AI first is what's being used. We have three AIs on the market that can be used. Two of them are approved in the first-line setting, And typically, I don't draw a great distinction between the three AIs in terms of starting therapy. I believe they're all similar in terms of their efficacy. 
There have been a lot of attempts to parse out the data from the trials that have been done and see if there are specific differences in toxicity. I think that's very difficult to do because you're comparing across trials with somewhat different patient populations, and particularly the way that the adverse events were recorded in some of the large trials that were done comparing, for example, the big trial to ATAC, it's hard to do because they looked at toxicity differently. So my feeling from my anecdotal experience in my own practice and my partner's practice is that the AIs tend to have similar toxicities and the data would suggest similar efficacy in the adjuvant setting. Now, we are seeing, though, we've done a review of this that we presented at San Antonio. We see about 20% of patients who start on an AI switch a drug over time. This is off a clinical trial setting. Most of them switch to another AI. And what's fascinating to me is that most of those patients then tolerate the other AI without the same toxicities. And I don't know what the underlying physiology is of that, except that there may be idiosyncratic reactions to one AI that differ from the other. So one point that I recommend to practitioners, if they're having trouble, particularly with musculoskeletal events, with one AI, simply trying a switch may ameliorate that, and patient can tolerate then a second drug. Occasionally, we've had patients who don't tolerate even two or even try all three AIs, and sometimes we switch them to tamoxifen. But if they don't tolerate two, they often don't tolerate any of the hormonal agents, including tamoxifen. What about the issue of how long to use the aromatase inhibitors in the adjuvant setting? We had used tamoxifen for five years, and that's kind of where we started out with the AIs, but now there's studies, including one of the NSABP, looking at maybe longer therapy beyond maybe even 10 years. How do you approach that decision in patients who are coming up to the five-year point if they're not eligible for a study like that? I think that's an evolving area, and it's a very important area. I've looked at the data by looking at, first of all, the risk of the patient and what the residual risk is in that patient after five years, and then I also balance that with what the toxicity that that particular patient is experiencing, if any. So I've been impressed that, first of all, we have data now that's growing from multiple data sets that suggest that ER-positive tumors have a hazard event of developing recurrence which persists for many years after their diagnosis, which is a little bit sobering because we used to believe that the five-year mark or the 10-year mark was the end of it and that all of their risk was over by that point. I'm convinced at least by the data, particularly from the CLGB group who has looked at this in great detail, that the hazard event actually stays pretty stable in ER-positive patients. It's lower, of course, than in ER-negative patients in the first few years, but then it actually may even be a little bit higher after year five. And so there continues to be risk for patients. From a practical perspective, the way I use that data is, for most patients who are node-negative, unless they had other very poor risk features, after five years of hormonal therapy, I typically stop the AI. Most patients who are hormone positive now are more and more looking at extended usage of the AI based on the data from the MA17 trial. So I'm looking at that. And then, of course, it depends on how well the patient is tolerating the drug. And if they tell me they're having no side effects whatsoever, I'm very comfortable with continuing it, assuming they can afford it. And if they're having a substantial amount of toxicity, well, that potential small relapse risk has to be compared to the actual events that are happening to the patient that day. And if they're having trouble, I might stop it. So it's very much the art of medicine and how you deal with every individual patient. But more and more, based on the data, I will continue an AI if the patient is tolerating. You know, it's interesting because there have been a series of reports over the last few years, first with tamoxifen, and then I started to see it with aromatase inhibitors of the issue of adherence. 
and studies suggesting that maybe a lot of patients aren't taking as much medication as we think they're taking. Maybe we don't even find out about it. Other people are questioning whether that research is really correct or not. What do you think is actually going on in reality in these women as they get out to years three, four, and five? Do you think that in general almost everybody's taking their medicine or is adherence maybe an important problem? My personal experience is that adherence doesn't seem to be a problem for AIs, even in years three, four, and five. Now, we see the patients typically every six months in those years, and of course, we question them about their drug usage. And there are some patients who stop their drug, and they're forthcoming, and they typically said, well, you know what, I just stopped it three months ago because I was having too many joint aches, and I don't want to go back on. So it's that small group of patients who at least admit to non-adherence of their medication. Now, we haven't done pill checks, and perhaps we need to do some more formal auditing based on some of the data that you refer to, which suggests adherence may not be that good. But it seems that breast cancer patients, in my experience, are very motivated to take therapy, particularly this type of therapy with either tamoxifen or AIs, which in general is very well tolerated across very large numbers of patients. I do think this is going to be an issue, though, as we move into the oral therapeutic realm of some of the new agents, which frankly have more side effects. And in breast cancer, we have lapatinib, which I have experience with. I think it's an excellent drug and has very substantial activity. It does have some toxicity. And the use of that in a longstanding type of usage, as is being tested in adjuvant trials that are opening, is going to be very interesting to see if patients will adhere to that type of drug. I want to touch a little bit on the issue that you mentioned before about adjuvant trastuzumab or Herceptin. And, you know, we talked about the whole issue of clinical research and what it could yield. And certainly this has been a really great example of how research can be so helpful to patient care. Can you kind of provide an overview of where we are right now in terms of adjuvant Herceptin and clinical practice based on these trials? The adoption of trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting was probably the most rapid uptake of any chemotherapeutic agent in the 20 years that I've been in practice after the presentation of the data. And so when this presented in ASCO, literally within weeks, most of the practices that I'm in touch with came back and immediately initiated the use of uh, trastuzumab-like protocol. In other words, a year of trastuzumab initially with a taxane following an AC regimen, although we now have another effective combination with the TCH combination as a non-anthracycline alternative. So that was very gratifying. Again, my perspective over 20 years is that not only was the data from that trial so remarkable, but it got out so fast and it changed practice so fast. And therefore, more patients benefited from that, perhaps more than anything else in oncology history that I'm aware of. And that's very gratifying because when you have a good discovery, it should get out to patients right away. And in fact, it's interesting, it took it something like six or 12 months for the FDA to approve it. By that time, everybody was using it, and importantly, it was getting reimbursed on the heels of the ASCO data. Now, we just finished an ASCO, and we just had an update from Edith Perez about the combined analysis of the two North American trials. And what's very fascinating and very gratifying is the data is holding up. And so not only do we see that now at four years of follow-up that the same proportional benefit of about 50% improvement and relapse-free survival continues, but we see a very firm about 15% absolute benefit across all different subgroups of patients. So it doesn't matter if you have one node positive or five nodes positive of younger or older, the benefit of trastuzumab is pervasive across all of those subgroups. So it's clearly here to stay. 
There are some controversies in terms of making decisions in clinical practice, and one is the issue of using trastuzumab in the patient who has a smaller node-negative tumor. We were talking about node-negative ER positive before. Now we're talking about node-negative HER2 positive. And I hear a lot of controversy, particularly about the really small tumors, less than a sonometer. How do you see that kind of decision getting made in practice, and what's sort of the downside that you're trying to balance against these sort of less dramatic effects in the smaller tumors? This is a huge problem. In a sense, it's a nice problem to have because we have therapy that works. And now the question is, we have to decide from a statistical perspective who derives more benefit than harm out of these types of therapies. So one approach, and this is not the approach I take, is just say, well, the toxicity is pretty minimal and let's overtreat patients so we capture everybody who could potentially benefit from this kind of therapy. And that would include even smaller tumors and perhaps even smaller tumors that are hormone receptor positive. I don't take that view because I do want to look at the long-term toxicity. And, you know, it is real for trastuzumab-based therapies. We now have a pretty firm number that somewhere between 25 to 3.5% of patients develop cardiac events after they're treated with an anthracycline and trastuzumab-containing regimen. And that's only in the first few years. We have no idea what will happen if a 45-year-old or 50-year-old woman is treated with ACTH today. What will their heart look like in 20 years? And will they have an increased risk of heart failure or coronary artery disease? We just don't know that. So when you're dealing with very small tumors who have an intrinsic risk, which is less than 10% of relapsing, you have to be very, very careful here. And I don't think anybody has the answer. And one question is, do we need to give a year of trastuzumab? Not so much necessarily for the toxicity, because you still incur some toxicity when you give it just for a short period, as George Sledge showed in a pilot study that was reported at San Antonio last year. But the interesting thing about Sledge's study was that's now the second trial that looked at a short course of trastuzumab in combination with chemotherapy and showed results very similar to the FinHER trial, suggesting that maybe we don't need that whole year of therapy, which certainly would be appreciated by women from a convenience and cost perspective as well. So we have a lot of questions to answer about I think that. we should add, though, that from what I can tell, again, in our National Patterns of Care surveys, both of oncologists and practice as well as investigators, even though there's this interest in whether the trastuzumab duration could be shortened. It seems as though right now, for practical purposes, virtually everybody's trying to get patients out to a year. Is that your take? That's my experience as well, although I will say that I have treated a few patients with lower-risk disease who have other issues, and outside of the trial setting, we have issues with adherence there and with transportation and sometimes financial issues that sometimes interplay. But I would agree that the default is definitely to do a year of trastuzumab. And it'll be really interesting when we see the two-year data from the two-year studies, whether that makes a difference. Hopefully that won't confuse the issue, but it has the potential to possibly extend our dosing on one hand while we have the possibility of looking at shortening of the dosing on the other hand from other trials. You mentioned the issue of the TCH regimen earlier. We were talking about TC, docetaxel cyclophosphamide. TCH is docetaxel carboplatin and trastuzumab or Herceptin. And there have been some data presented now in the last year suggesting that perhaps you can get the same benefits that you get from the regimens with the anthracyclines where the cardiac problems are seen with the TCH regimen without having to have that risk of a cardiac problem. What's your take on that? And what are you seeing in practice right now as people sort of try to figure this out? 
We participated in that trial, the BCIRG06 trial, so I've had a number of patients of my own and my partners who have been on that trial. I believe the data of the trial, which suggests that there is equivalence in the TCH compared to the ACTH regimen. And the way I use it now, it's one of the accepted regimens and our guidelines in our practice. And what I typically do is, because there's still more data with the anthracycline and we have so much experience with the anthracycline, I reserve TCH for patients who I think are at risk for cardiac events. And I use, in particular, the cardiac analysis from B31 that was presented previously and was updated at ASCO this year as a guidepost for me. So that if I have patients over the age of 55, particularly if they have a risk factor like hypertension, or if I have a patient that has a borderline ejection fraction in the low normal range, I'd be more inclined to use TCH today because there is some evidence that the cardiac effects are considerably less and significantly less than with an anthracycline-containing regimen. Now, one of the trials that's being discussed is sort of the next generation of adjuvant studies by the NSABP and the BCRG group that you participated with is the idea of taking the TCH regimen and then adding in Avastin or Bevacizumab, which we talked about before. How do you think that trial is going to play out in the community, getting back to this issue of how patients and doctors are going to perceive it? I think from a scientific perspective, it's fascinating. I think we have to look at it again from a societal perspective. And since we're already at about 85% disease-free survival now, that will not hold and more patients will fail later. But that probably should be reserved for the patients at highest risk, in my opinion, where there's going to be a number of events. Because if you treated patients with that kind of regimen, which might also have some toxicity across the entire spectrum of HER2-positive disease, including node-negative, you would be treating a lot of patients with a complex and expensive regimen to benefit a few. So when we do those studies, which are critical, and because of the potential interaction with angiogenic and HER2 that I mentioned before, we need to try to define either intermediate biomarkers that predict for response or resistance, or to pick clinical markers that would suggest that the patients who are going to benefit the most are those that are at the highest risk. I want to ask you about a couple more research issues, and one that I know that you actually have been involved with in terms of doing research with this agent is NAB, paclitaxel, or abraxane. We were talking before about the issue of taxanes and docetaxel in the HER2-negative and HER2-positive situation. Can you talk a little bit about what NAB, paclitaxel is and what potential advantages you think it might have in the clinical setting? NAB-paclitaxel is a new formulation of paclitaxel that does away with the cremophore or the solubilizing agent which was used in the original paclitaxel preparation or taxol because it's a very large organic molecule that is very poorly soluble in water. So the original formulation essentially made it possible to deliver this intravenously. The problem is that the cremophore is the cause of some of the toxicity, I should say, particularly the immediate hypersensitivity reactions, which have been even fatal in a small number of cases, and also requires the paclitaxel to be given over a prolonged period of time with pre-medications that block the effect of anaphylaxis, which is difficult for patients and difficult for practices in infusion centers. So the NAB paclitaxel, or nanoparticle albumin-bound paclitaxel, is a new technology which uses very small molecules of albumin to coat and to attach to the paclitaxel, and that allows it to be solubilized in water without a cremophore or other solubilizing agent. 
It also allows the drug to begin over a short infusion without any pre-medications whatsoever. So in terms of convenience and acute safety, the drug is preferable for that reason. It's been tested against standard formulations of paclitaxel and has been shown to be at least as good, if not better, than standard paclitaxel and has also been shown in randomized phase two study to be at least as good, if not better, to docetaxel, which some would argue in the best regimen would be slightly better than paclitaxel. You mentioned the issue of the fact that uh, pre-medications, corticosteroids, antihistamines are not necessarily with nabpaclitaxel. I wanted to tell you to get your take on this. I know you have an interest in looking at patterns of care, and so do we. And we just did a survey about a month ago of 150 randomly selected medical oncologists in the United States. And one of the things we asked them was, do you prescribe corticosteroids and antihistamines when you're using NAB? And 30% said yes. And of the 51 (laughs) investigators, virtually none said yes. Tremendous gap. That's fascinating, Neil. I mean, your surveys are really so interesting to me because they really get at the heart of what's happening out there in the community. What do you think is going on there? I think it's inertia. I think it's total inertia. I think that pretty much everybody has seen a paclitaxel reaction, and they're very scary. I mean, the last thing you want to do is get out your crash cart in the middle of your infusion center, and we do that occasionally, and it just... It really is a very emotional experience and one you don't forget. So because those drugs are pretty non-toxic and can be given and there's a lot of experience, people are still doing it. and just supports the idea that we need to do better education around these things and that, in my opinion, there's no reason to give pre-medication for nabpaclitaxel. And that's just a vestige of giving a lot of paclitaxel with cremaphore that causes a problem. Yeah, and I mean, the trials that actually study NAB don't use pre-medication. That's what we're basing our decisions on is using it that way. I was curious, I noticed that you were part of a group that presented a paper at ASCO on the prevalence of insomnia in cancer patients at this last ASCO meeting. And I was thinking about, I wonder how much of the insomnia that you see in cancer patients is related to corticosteroids. Any thoughts on that? I think the acute insomnia is at least part related to corticosteroids. We see a lot of anxiety and insomnia in breast cancer patients. And if we can do away with medicines that you don't need, certainly that have some side effects, not only insomnia, but also diabetes we see, or at least temporary rise in blood sugars very commonly for patients getting high-dose corticosteroids. I think, why should we keep giving them unless there's a real scientific and medical rationale to do it? So I agree. By the way, insomnia, we have a symptom screener that we use in, across all patients now, and it's in 100 clinics, and insomnia and sexual dysfunction are the number one and two problems that all cancer patients, but particularly breast cancer patients, report even years after their treatment. So these are big issues that are not going away, and they probably reflect, to some extent, normal populations, but probably exaggerated in breast cancer patients. And we don't have good handles on how to deal with them. I think that's the next frontier for medical oncologists that do breast oncology, is to also start focusing on some of these chronic problems.